Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you doing out there? Great to see you this morning. If you are here for the very first time, a super-duper welcome to you. Uh, you probably figured out already that uh, church is pretty relaxed here, and we're a bit bizarre, and that we think it's actually okay to have some fun at church. So if we're not morbid enough or sad enough or serious enough for you this morning, I just apologize up front. We're going to be uh, what we are, right? This morning, we're continuing with our series called Perfect Fit. It's, uh, we're wrapping up the uh, teaching that we've been going through for a year and a half or so, off and on through the book of Romans in the New Testament. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 15 today, so if you've got your Bibles or apps or want to turn there, you've got a couple of seconds to do that. I've shown you a couple of videos today, one with Jim Carrey and one with uh, Brian Cranston. I did that because, I don't know about you, I just kind of love those biopics where, uh, or interviews of people who are kind of famous uh, you get a little peek behind the curtain about what makes them tick, you know, what, you know, what roles they pick and why do they pick them, what, uh, how, how do they function, why do they do what they do kind of thing. Well, today, Serge, we're in for a treat because we've got an opportunity to do just that. The Apostle Paul, who's written a good portion of the New Testament, including the book of Romans, he's written other letters as well. We don't have them all. Uh, for example, I don't, we probably don't have this one. I don't think we have this one. But uh, in Romans, Paul seems to stop and kind of go, hey, you know what? Um, let me just tell you what drives me. Let me tell you what motivates me. Let, me. let me tell you why I do what I do. And in order to appreciate that, what I want to do is walk us back just a little bit and kind of capture the story of this guy, since many of you weren't here when we first started the series uh, back way back a year and a half or so ago. Uh, he's introduced to us by the name of Saul, Saul of Tarsus. That's his Hebrew name. It literally gets changed to Paul, which is like the Latin or Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Saul, but kind of what happened in this guy's life. Well, here's the deal. After Jesus taught, uh, healed people, claimed to be God, claimed to be the Messiah, after he was crucified and then rose from the dead, kind of just like he said he would do, uh, his followers kind of became real believers and caught fire. And echoing Jesus, they kind of walked around and said, hey, Jesus is the way, he's the life, he's the truth, and nobody's going to be made right with God except as they come through by faith in Jesus Christ. Well, you might be surprised to know that that didn't set all that well with the established Jewish religious elite. Uh, you know, they thought they were in good with God just because they were Jewish and they'd uh, had the law that God gave them, uh, and even though they didn't keep it all, they thought, hey, that made us right with God. <clears throat> oh, well, a young Jewish follower... Uh, of Jesus named Stephen goes into the temple and he basically proclaims that Jesus is God and basically says, all you guys who just killed him, you kind of missed your shot at God. Well, they've finally had enough. <laughs> they finally had enough. They got angry. They grabbed him. They took him out of the city and they just basically hurled stones at him until it crushed his head and he died, right? Watching this violence was a young upstart lawyer by the name of Saul. First in his class, Ivy League education, he was being trained by one of the most famous, best uh, rabbis in Israel called Gamaliel. Uh, he's actually holding the jackets and the cloaks of the people throwing the boulders at Stephen. And he kind of steps back and kind of realizes, you know, hey, no, no one's really claimed the title yet of persecutor of Christians. And maybe he thought, this is my way up the ladder. So he goes to the Supreme Court of the land, the Sanhedrin, and asks for permission to go after these Christians. Uh, we need to silence these guys who are saying that Jesus is God. Well, he gets more than permission. He receives letters and documents that allows him to travel all over the place 
uh, and these letters say, hey, he's, this guy is doing what he's doing. He's acting on behalf of the uh, Supreme Court, if you will. And when he starts terrorizing Christians in Jerusalem and around the area, Judea, people start fleeing. And uh, he hears that there's a group of Christians up in a city about 120 miles north uh, in Syria called Damascus. So he gets his co cohorts and they're hidden up there to bring them all bound back to Jerusalem for their just rewards. But in route, there's a blinding light. And the voice from within the light says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul asks, okay, who is this? Who are you? And the voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Paul's got to be thinking, uh-oh, I, I thought this guy was just some charlatan. I know he's been killed. I know he's, they say he's raised from the dead, but he's speaking to me from this cloud, this blinding light. And uh, for three days, he's got no sight. The blinding light blinds him, literally. He's got three days to reflect on, oh, how could I have missed this? How could I have been so wrong? And in a way that only God could work, God directs him to this little church in Damascus, after all, where he was going to go arrest everybody, right? And they take him in. They pray for him. His eyesight is restored. And he uh, goes to the Jewish synagogue right there in Damascus immediately and proclaims to everybody who's listening that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah and the Son of God. Well, you know, that kind of puts him at odds with the Supreme Court of the land and the Jewish religious leaders. He becomes an enemy of the people, you know, most wanted list. He actually survives a plot by the Jewish leaders to kill him in Damascus. He then heads to Jerusalem. And he wants to meet with the Christians there, but, you know, they remember Paul as the terrorist, right, uh, who's after them. And so they're, they're scared to death. It takes a fellow by the name of Barnabas to kind of convince them that Saul's on the up and up. So the church then gets wind that uh, they're trying to kill him in Jerusalem. So they send him up north to Tarsus, where he came from, up north, and he kind of disappears for a few years, obviously studying, growing, looking at that Old Testament through a new lens, like, okay, Jesus is God, he's the Messiah, I missed him the first time through, what's going on, he kind of masters all, all that material, right? The next time Saul shows up, it's in this little church in a little place called Antioch, and his buddy Barnabas is with him, and in a prayer meeting in that church, the Holy Spirit, God comes in and gives that group a message. I want you to separate Saul and Barnabas for some work I have for them to do. I intend now to get this word that the Jews have rejected to all of the Gentiles across the Roman Empire. So, and they're probably thinking, okay, that's not going to go over so well. Saul's the terrorist. He's a criminal. He's a bad guy, okay? He's not the, he's not the, maybe you should take the pastor or the worship leader or somebody, and they say, no, no, one thing Paul is, is committed. He was committed to killing Christians. Now he's committed to me saving lives. So I've got a map up on the screen here in a minute. There you go. It's not the best map in terms of names, but it's the best map I could find to kind of help you travel along with what Paul did on these missionary journeys as God sends him out. So uh, the white line is where you're going to start. So over there on the right-hand side, uh, in Antioch, about halfway up the screen, you see Antioch. That's where Paul's hanging out, or Saul's hanging out. Uh, so they decide they're going to go on this missionary journey, and so they, they follow the, the, the white line. They go first to the island of Cyprus, just off the coast, right? Super duper things happen there. Uh, the governor of the whole island accepts Christ. Uh, and after that, Saul's not called Saul anymore. He's called Paul. 
probably because he, as a Gentile name, he's not going to be reaching all these Gentiles. He roams the island, hitting all the cities there, and uh, then he goes up into this area of north, Galatia, right above that. And uh, he heads through Perga and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, and every city he goes to, the first place he stops is the synagogue, because he's a Jew and he loves his people, so he wants to see if he can get them uh, connected to Christ, right? Um, and he tells them, you know, look, I was like you guys. I missed him the first time. <laughs> yeah, everybody expected. I did. When the Messiah came, he was going to basically kick some Roman tush. I mean, he's going to set up a kingdom. He's going to drive the Romans out. Uh, everybody expected him to set up a political kingdom and then rescue them from Roman rule. And Paul said, yeah, me too. That's why he hated Christians so much, because you guys said we missed it. But Jesus did come to free us, but just not from Roman rule kind of bigger than that. He came to free us from our sin and the eternity of death waiting for us because of that sin. He came to set up his power, but inside of Christians and the lives and hearts of his followers. And in every synagogue you went to, there are two types of people, right? Some go, man, I, I've never heard this before. This whole Messiah thing, this Jesus thing, this is news to me. I, I'm looking at my life. I'm looking at where I'm going. I'm looking at the trajectory of my life, and I figure like, you know, I could really use some of this Jesus. But there's also the other crowd that goes, who the heck are you to tell me that my keeping the Jewish laws and regulations aren't going to be enough to get me in good with God? And uh, everywhere he goes, there are people that end up wanting to kill him. And he goes, and he goes to town after town after town, this happens. They get to Lystra, the people there are generally hating Paul, but there's one crippled guy listening to Paul, and Paul kind of senses that maybe this guy's paying attention a little bit more carefully than others. So he says, look, uh, why don't you just get up and walk in the name of Jesus? And the guy does, and the crowd changes its mind altogether. They pick them up, Paul and Barnabas, and they're carrying through the streets like a parade is going on, and they don't know what's going on until they find out, wait a minute, this is, this is a, they are going to go take us this place, and they're going to offer sacrifices to us because they think we are Roman gods. <laughs> and Paul says, no, 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 we're not, we're not Roman gods, we're just people, but we are telling you here about God himself and Jesus, his son. Right? So, um, that's the way that goes. Crowds are fickle, though, aren't they? Because the Jews from the previous cities wander in, and they turn the crowd against Paul and Barnabas, and they drag Paul out of the city, and they stone him. And they crush his head with rocks and leave him for dead. It's really unclear from Scripture what the miracle is. But there is one. Either Paul was raised from the dead... Or he has this incredible, miraculous healing where his head is put back together, right? And he gets up, and he walks back into the city. <laughs> and I'm going, I just kind of like to imagine that scene. As all the people who threw rocks at him until he was dead or thought they was dead, see him walking around like nothing happened. So nobody's touching him that night. <laughs> the next day, he leaves Galatia heads all the way back, visiting the churches he kind of hung out with, and goes back to his little church in Antioch. And he says, man, crazy stuff is happening out there. People are flocking to Christ. Of course, some aren't, but, you know, hey, it's okay because people are coming to God. He says, we've got to do this again. And sure enough, they plan a second missionary journey. You can follow the yellow line on this one. They walk north by land, visiting the churches they already set up, and then they get all the way over there, and then they just go head west head west all the way to the Aegean Sea. They cross the Aegean Sea by ship, and they end up in a little city called Philippi. There they meet Lydia, a very, very successful businesswoman. 
She accepts Christ, becomes a great donor on the trip. He also meets a little slave girl there that's possessed with a spirit. And uh, Paul casts the spirit out of her. And the men that owned this girl, the men that were trafficking this girl, realize they just lost their income. So they run to the authorities and report that Paul and his crew are saying bad things against Rome and Caesar's not God and all that kind of stuff. So they grab Paul, they whip him, beat him, put him in jail. But then there's an earthquake and all the jail cells open. And the jailer sees that the jail cells are all open and he gets ready to kill himself because he knows, hey, that's going to be the Roman punishment for letting the prisoners go. And Paul yells out, hey, don't, don't hurt yourself. Everybody's here. We're all fine. Paul ends up leading that jailer and his whole family to faith in Christ. They continue on to a city called Thessalonica. Again, some believe, some don't. And those that don't cause a big stink, and they basically arrest the guy where Paul's uh, house is, where the house where Paul is staying. But uh, they sneak him out of, sneak Paul and his crew out overnight so that they're safe. He heads to Berea. Interesting case. The people listened. They had questions. They weren't sure. So what did they do? They got their Old Testament. They started looking at the scriptures to see what Paul was saying was true. And they become convinced that Jesus is, in fact, God and the Messiah. Then they make their way down to Corinth. People there have tried everything, right? They got lots of money. It's a port city, and nothing fulfilled them. And Paul shares with them the one thing money can't buy, Jesus. And a lot of people come to faith in Christ there. He crosses the Aegean back over, stops in Ephesus, then he heads back to Jerusalem and tells everybody what happened there. Third trip breaks out. Follow this on the blue line. Once again, he'll go through all of the cities where he established churches earlier just to encourage them, find out how they're doing. He gets all the way back to the port city of Ephesus. Then he goes north around the Aegean to a little uh, Corinth again, and he's there in the winter. So he can't sail in the winter, too dangerous. Can't cross the peaks and valleys. Too, uh, too dangerous there. So he, he heads, he just hangs out there for a while, and it's in that city that he writes the book we're actually looking at today, Book of Romans. Paul knows there's Christians in Rome. He wants to get there, but God keeps going to send him other places, right? Eventually, the weather breaks. He traces his steps back all the churches, makes his way back to Jerusalem, and I've just summarized 20 years of Paul's life and about 21 chapters of the Book of Acts. And now we're going to get to set with Paul, you know, maybe on, you know, in the actor's studio or something, and say, Paul, what makes you tick? I mean, the first time you were beaten and had all of the skin ripped off your back, did you think about just, you know, just kind of calling it quits, maybe going home? I mean, the second time your back was laid open and permanently scarred, did you think about throwing in the towel? What was it like living, knowing that there were people following you around just waiting for the opportunity to kill you. How many times have you been sent to prison? Shipwrecked. Bitten by snakes. Hey, when they stoned you and left you for dead, didn't you think about, man, maybe a new line of work would be a good thing? I mean, when's enough enough? What makes you say to yourself, wait a minute, <laughs> there's still another town. What is it, Paul, that drives you? And Paul waits until chapter 15 of this book before he kind of tells us why he does what he does. And I think it's in hopes of influencing why you and I do what we do. Look, we've taken two weeks on the last chapter and a half where Paul has written out specifically how hard it can be for us to all get along. Who'd have thought that peanut butter and chocolate would have been a good mix, right? 
I got this from the 1981 ad for Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, right? We've each got our past, right? We've each got our own baggage, our own family of origin. We've got our own opinions, our own preferences. So Paul has pleaded with us not to draw lines in the sand that God doesn't draw. Don't sit around and be judging people who are just different, maybe newer Christians who haven't figured out stuff you've figured out because you've been at it 40 years, right? Focus on the main thing, Jesus Christ and that relationship. Encourage people on the things that God has spoken clearly about. And Paul's going to tell us why we have to do church this way. Because we have to keep our eyes on the big picture, what God is up to. God's not saving people just like me. He's not saving people just like you. He's saving people from everywhere. Jews for sure, but non-Jews from all over the world. It's what God had in mind from the get-go. People very different from all over the globe coming to faith in Christ. Look at what Paul says starting in verse 8, Romans 15. For I tell you that Christ Jesus became a servant to the circumcised. The circumcised refers to the Jews. Right? To show God's truthfulness. So God made, some, God made a statement and he's saying hey, he's, he's coming and he's, he's basically telling the truth. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Well, the promises. It was God promised in his word all the way back in Genesis 3 that he's going to send a Messiah to save people from the sin that they had fallen into. Someone who would save people from the penalty of sin and then offer eternal life. But he didn't just come to save Jews. He came, verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it's written. And then Paul starts throwing out a bunch of information from the Old Testament. Quotes from the Psalms, quotes from Isaiah, just to show that basically God's heart always was, always has been for everybody to come to faith in Christ. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name, right? So Paul says, look, I do what I do as a Christian to fulfill God's heart that both Jews and Gentiles from all over the world would come to faith in Christ. Yeah, all those people are different, different races, different backgrounds, different cultures, different professions, just different. And they're going to have different opinions and preferences, but united by our faith in Christ and driven by God's love for us through Christ, we can actually love each other through all the nonsense. And that love can overwhelm the differences. And when that happens, other people will see that. And they're going to begin to want to know about this Jesus that we worship. And God's going to be seen in action through our lives. And Paul's a Christian. And he's just clued us in on why he does what he does. And why it ought to drive what we do. So how do we live a life that matters? How do you, how do you live a life that counts as a Christian? How do you live a life that's got significance? I mean, not temporary, but real significance. You might write it down this way if you're taking notes. A life that matters to God is a life that introduces others to Jesus. A life that matters to God is a life that introduces others to Jesus. In fact, I'm going to show you before we're done that others is the sole reason you and I as Christians are even here. And others is the main issue for God, that others would come to know him. You, you probably know this because you were probably like this, but a lot of kids go through phases where they're just wildly interested in certain topics, right? For my son, it was uh, Star Wars and how every president in the United States died. Kind of macabre, but that's, that was his thing. I mean, he was great. He died this way. And they, <laughs> my granddaughters, all right now, everything is Harry Potter, sloths, pigs, and dinosaurs, right? <laughs> as a kid, I had phases, right? Every book that had a dog in it, I read them all. 
UFOs, fascinated with UFOs, crime, and disasters. And one of the disasters was the Titanic. Uh, thanks to James Cameron movie back in the late 90s. I'm going to assume everybody's kind of familiar with the Titanic episode, you know, April 2000 or 1912. This unsinkable ship goes off, you know, and sailing in the North Atlantic, hits an iceberg and sinks. 2,200 and something people on board, 1,500 die. Survivors report that the lifeboats, many of them not even filled to capacity, pushed away from the ship and then linked with each other, tied themselves together with other lifeboats. They knew this, that when the ship sank, something that big, it would create a vortex. It would just suck in anything near, under, with it. So they sat out there in the cold. Thankful, though, that they were alive as they watched the devastation unfold, heard the cries from people on the ship, cries from people who had jumped or fallen off the ship. But there were two lifeboats that dared to row back into the destruction and try to grab survivors any way they could. I think that's an amazing picture of what the church is supposed to be. Who are we going to be at the surge? Who are we going to be at the surge? Are we going to be people that, that kind of realize, okay, this, this life is broken. I need, I need a savior. We've climbed unto the lifeboat that is Jesus Christ. Yeah, we got our salvation rafts. We're huddled together with other people that are saved. We're happy as clams to sing songs about how glad we are that we're saved. Or are we going to be people that dare to row back into the destruction in hopes of grabbing someone else? See, that's what Paul says. I, 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 I got to be the guy that rows back in. I was the guy that hated Jesus. I was the guy making a living out of killing Christians creating orphans, torturing people, until I met Jesus. And when I met Jesus, I did not get what I should have gotten. I did not get what I deserved. I got grace, and I got mercy, and I got forgiveness. I mean, the very church I was going to go to and persecute and bring them back to certain death welcomed me into their Bible study. They loved me. They prayed for me. They gave my sight back in more ways than one. I was the least deserving of anybody on earth I ever known. But because of what I found in Jesus, I must row in to the destruction of the Roman Empire and try to grab as many as I can. This is why I do what I do, he says. So that every Jew and every Gentile who hasn't heard the story of Jesus will have a chance to know him. See, this Bible is not just a book to make us better people, more moral, so that when we get to heaven, God will be less disgusted with us. The book shows us how we're supposed to walk with God in the here and now so that God can change us in the here and now and use the change in us to influence others. That's why we're supposed to be doing what we do. And that's why Paul would have probably said, well, I would have, I would have loved to stay home and not go back into jail. I would love not to stand in front of another crowd that has rocks in its hand or soldiers with a whip in theirs. But I know where they're headed without Christ. And because I've been given this life that I do not deserve, I just have to share with others. Because we need to get this. The salvation of others is the only thing that God is waiting for. See this from the book of 2 Peter. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter says, hey, you know what God's waiting for? You know why we're still left on this earth as Christians? 
know why we're still walking through the brokenness and the misery of this planet? You know why we're still dealing with hurt and pain? You know why we're still dealing with cancer? Tumors? Because God's not done yet. God wants everybody who will come to faith in Jesus to get the chance to do so. That's all he's waiting for. God's goal is not for you to go through suffering for suffering's sake. But that you and I, in the midst of our suffering, would do what God challenges us to do in Matthew 5 and 6. Be salt and light. Be salt. Save the rotting corpses of humanity. Shine a light in the darkness. In the midst of what you and I are going through in this planet, we're going to be placed in places that allow us to share with somebody. And that's all God's waiting for. He's not slow, but the moment he says, that's it, it's over. He's not willing for any to perish, but to come to know him. That's what drives Paul. In fact, he's writing to the church he founded in Corinth, and he tells them this, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul was dedicated to just connecting with people. When he was with Jews, he took part in Jewish customs just to win them over to Christ. When he was with Gentiles, he followed their rules so as not to offend them. Why? So he could share Jesus. And he would hang out with people who have no regard for God whatsoever, just like Jesus did. Not because he was some party animal, but because he knew their life here and their eternity beyond was in jeopardy and that they needed Christ. They need what I have, Paul would say, Jesus. So I, I hang out with people in those circles. I'm here to love these people because Jesus loves those people. I'm doing this so people who don't know God, I'll see in church one day. And I'll see them in heaven one day, worshiping God. Paul would say, now that's significance. I mean, that's what's ultimately going to count. So the question we have for us is, right, Serge, do we, do we want that? Do we want that? Don't you want that? Don't you want to look down the road and see the guy that no one thinks will ever come to Christ in here, worshiping God? See the girl that this world has destroyed and used and demeaned in here, worshiping as the daughter of the king of the universe? See the marriage that both people have given up on in here, holding hands, singing to the God of the universe? That's what drove Paul. That's why I do what I do. Paul says this in Romans 15, verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. By word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who've never been told of him will see. And those who've never heard will understand. And this is the reason, he writes to the Romans, why I've been so often hindered in coming to you. So sitting in Corinth, Paul writes the book of Romans, and he says, hey, you guys in Rome know why I've not yet made it all the way around to you guys? It's because of all the people who are living between Jerusalem and Rome. <laughs> they have to be told about Christ. And the Holy Spirit kept directing me to them. And how did Paul talk about the gospel? He tells us. He says, I purposed not to talk about anything 
other than what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to Christ. So Paul walks in and he goes, hey, I'm Paul. You might have heard of me. I killed Christians. You might want to know why I'm not carrying a weapon today. Let me tell you who I used to be. Let me tell you who I am today. Let me tell you what Christ has done in me and how he's used me. Paul says, that's what I'm going to talk about. We, we, we need to hear this, I think. We are called to share our experience with Jesus Christ, not to win arguments. I mean, I get it. It's tough. It's a lot easier for me to sit up here and yak at you guys than it would be to talk to the person next to you on a subway train or on your vacation or in your neighborhood. I mean, nobody's telling anybody to get a wood box and a megaphone and stand on it and yell about people how they're going to hell, right? Just share your own experience with Christ. But I think sometimes the reasons we don't do that is because we, we don't think we have all the answers. What if they ask about Genesis 1 and 2? Was it six days of creation or was it billions of years? What if they ask about carbon dating? I really don't understand that. I don't have the scientific evidence of that. So what if I start sharing Christ and they bring up dinosaurs? When did the dinosaurs live? Did man live with the dinosaurs? Did they live before the dinosaurs? What happened to the dinosaurs? I don't know the answer to that question. What if they ask about God and time, right? Did God always exist? Did he exist before time? How's that possible? Did something create, I mean, you know what Paul said he shares? He shares what God has done in his life. That's it. And if you and I do that, we'll always win the discussion. Because what God has done in your life is indisputable. Seriously, nobody can dispute it. If your marriage was a mess and God fixed it, no one's going to say it didn't happen. Here's who you were before Christ. Here's who you are now. You, you ought to have a story, right? Paul's got a heck of a story. Most of you are not killers of Christians, right? I mean, anybody fit that category? No. Okay. Didn't think so. But to have been that and now not be that, well, that's a dramatic change. But I hope you do have a story, a before Christ and an after Christ story, because that's what Paul shared. He wasn't trying to win arguments or debates. Actually, if you go, read through scripture, Paul ends up in Mars Hill. And he actually gets into the big debate, a big argument. And what's amazing about that conversation that he has with the folks in Mars Hill, very few people come to Christ. Paul is devastated. He leaves that session depressed because he got away from what he normally does, which is just telling people about who I was and who I am now. Let me tell you about the story of my walk with Christ and what Christ has done, what he's doing in me, what's he doing through me. And he tries to get into a big debate and it flops. Good lesson. That's what Paul did. People ask me stuff all the time I don't know. <laughs> but I can say this. I, here's what I do know. I know who I was before Christ. And I know who I am now. I know what he's done in me since I became a Christian. I know what drove me before and I know what drives me now. Jesus has been very good for me. You ought to, you ought to check him out because he might be very good for you too. But see, that's what we need to share with people. Our small group, uh, we meet every other Wednesday. We're meeting this Wednesday. Come. <laughs> is in the middle of talking about this conversation Jesus has with this woman in Samaria. In John chapter 4. Jesus goes into Samaria, enemy territory. Jews and Samarians hate each other. Uh, he meets this woman at the well at noon. She wants to talk about race and religion. And Jesus only wants to talk about relationships. He kind of tells her who he is. And uh, lets her kind of reveal how messed up she is. And then he tells her how good things could be if she just had faith in him and believe what he said. 
She walks away believing that he's Jesus, Messiah, Savior of the world. That's all she knows. She was dead in her sins and now she's not. That's all she knows. What, is, what, is, what does she do? Go to seminary? Study for five years? Learn everything she can so she can then finally know enough to tell everybody else about Christ? No. She gets up immediately, heads into town, gathers up everybody that she can and says, come with me and meet a guy who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? She simply told them her story. Could they have asked her questions she didn't know the answer to? What's his first name? I don't know. What's his last name? I don't know. Where's he from? I don't know. Where's his mom and dad live? I don't know. All I know is this. Here's who I was at noon. And here's who I am now. And this guy knew me and changed me from who I was to what I am now. You, you, you ought to come and just check this guy out. The entire town comes. And two days later, after Jesus, they talk Jesus into staying, he, they say, well, we, we came out to see this guy because of your story. Because of your story, you skank. She's married five times, living with a guy that's not her husband, right? She's the town winch. That's why she goes at noon to get water. And nobody else is going to be there. She's invisible. No influence whatsoever. But she goes and tells people that she's actually trying to avoid what has just happened to her. She shares her story. And it's a story nobody can dispute. So three questions as we wrap up. Every question ought to be able to answer. You have to answer. Where do I stand with God is the first one. Where do I stand with God? I know what Christians, we, we tend to look at the scriptures and we go, well, we see Paul, we see Peter, we see Jesus. We go, well, I'm not those guys. Don't spend your time looking at those guys. The greats of the great, right? Look in the rearview mirror. Look at where you've been. Just look at the last 12 months. In the past year, have you grown spiritually? Are you walking closer with Christ? Are you taking steps of faith that God is directing you to do? Are you being obedient in those areas? Can you look at your life in the last year and go, wow, I, I, I guess maybe if I look at it that way, through a 12-month lens, things have changed a lot. God, God is doing some work in my life. Man, I, I feel like I'm growing. And, and so would, would you be happy to see that same growth happen in the next 12 months? I mean, if the answer is yes, then just keep doing what you're doing. But for those of us who might look in the mirror and go, I'm not sure there's been any change in the last 12 months. If I look at my last year, I just don't see anything going on. I don't sense any spiritual growth. I don't sense any steps of faith. I don't sense God intervening in my life, engaging with my life at all. And for those in that boat, we got to say to ourselves, what the heck am I doing? What am I doing? Why am I not experiencing this God of the universe in my life right now? I'm not feeling any change going on. And when people ask me about this, I'll ask them about their lives. And, and, uh, and the question is this. Okay, if you're going to look at your life a little bit, where are you stepping out? Where are you doing what Jesus is directing you to do? Because people who experience God in their lives are those who are stepping out doing what God is actually asking them to do. Because God will change our lives in order to change other people's lives. That's why we're here. That's why the moment you were saved, you were not taken immediately to heaven. 
You're here to fill the lifeboat. You're here to row back in. You're here to be involved in God's work of saving someone else. So you want to experience the power of God in your life? Step out in the area or areas of your life that God's telling you to step out in. See, if you don't step out, if you don't row back in, you'll experience nothing. And if you haven't had anything happen in the last year, that's what you're experiencing, nothing. But God's not here just to bless your life. God's here to change our lives so that we can change others' lives through what he does in us. Step out to those things God's put in your life. That leads to the second question. Who has God put into your life that needs Christ? Who has God put into your life? Not asking you to change a continent, folks. That's Paul's business. Asking you to be willing to change a life. Who is the person in your life that needs Christ? Start with one. You might be amazed that it grows to three or four or five, but start with one. See, saying that you love everybody is really saying you're not really not going to love anybody. Just love somebody. Get a name. Who is in your life that doesn't know God? Who is in your life that's going to be sucked down in disaster and tragedy from what happens in this broken world? Who is it? Because when you step out and do what God tells you to do, you will encounter God's plan unfolding. You don't see it all at once. You take the step, you see another step. And once you experience the plan of God, you'll start encountering the power of God. And once you do that, you will not want to not experience it. It will drive what you do. Third question. What am I actually doing to get those, that person into an introduction with Christ? Be significant. Be driven about the things that are going to last forever. People matter to God. <clears throat> Does that surprise you? You matter to him. If you're a Christian here this morning. So other people should matter to us too because they matter to God too. P people are not bodies that have a soul. We are souls that happen to have these bodies temporarily. You and I have the opportunity because we know Christ to introduce people to Jesus. And then Jesus changes the trajectory of that soul. The only thing that matters at the end is whether that soul is found in Jesus or is not. Do you see your job? Do you see your school? Do you see your hobbies? Do you see your activities as the places God has placed you to introduce people to Jesus? If not, you are focused on the temporary. Don't fall for the temporary. Be significant. And significant from God's viewpoint is what lasts forever. What am I doing? And why am I doing it? We see why Paul does what he does. Why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? I do hope you have a vision that someday the person that's crossed your mind as we've talked, the person that doesn't know Jesus, may be sitting in this room, maybe next to you, maybe across the floor, worshiping God with you. That's significance. And it really, it's the only thing that will last beyond this life. And that's why we do church the way we do church. See, but doing church on Sunday morning, no matter how well we do it, no matter how bad the good, the play, good or bad the band plays, it's feckless if we are not in the world like Paul was, seized with the significance of the gospel's ability to change a life, both for now and for an eternity. That's significance. 
Let's not settle for less. Let's pray.